This week's episode is brought to you by Oracle NetSuite. Oracle NetSuite, I think, solves a really important problem that a lot of startups, business owners, executives face, which is how do you get the information that you need instantly all in one place? Before we upgraded the Oracle NetSuite at my last startup, it used to take us a lot of time to pull the information reports that we needed for our quarterly investment meeting or the report that we wanted to send to both internal employees as well as stakeholders and shareholders at the end of the month. Upgrade to Oracle NetSuite today so you can get the visibility and control you need over your financials, HR, inventory, and everything you need in one place that you can access instantly. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash scale. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash scale. That is netsuite.com slash scale. Uh, we have a really special guest today. Um, VJ joining us from SecFi. Um, VJ, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Really excited to be here. Awesome. So Vijay, um, we grew up together in SF um, and I won't tell your story for you. I'd love to kind of get like just for folks that that don't know you, maybe just like a quick background on like um, where you grew up, where you went to school and maybe just kind of like the quick highlights of like the stops you've had on your career so far. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me, guys. Really excited to be here. Um, yeah, as Robbie mentioned, you know, I grew up here in San Francisco, uh, true unicorn, you know, I know we're called companies worth over a billion dollars unicorns, but I think people who grew up in San Francisco are a little more rare nowadays with the valuations going around. So uh, I know for those that, that, for those of you that don't know, Robbie and I grew up together um, here in San Francisco. Uh, I went to, ended up going to Lowell High School. Um, and then after going to Lowell, um, went to University of Washington up in Seattle. Ended up being one of the best decisions in my life. Really enjoyed my time out there. Uh, really enjoyed the sports, the city, and Seattle is just a great, great city. I know it's uh, the, the talk of the town seems to be Denver and Austin and everyone moving outside of San Francisco and New York, but uh, you know, Seattle is also a really great place. Uh, so spent a few years there. I started out uh, as an engineer, uh, really was kind of nerding out my whole life on computers and uh, coding and, and did a few projects when I was a, when I was a kid that I really got interested in. Um, something switched uh, as soon as I got to school. Decided to kind of switch things up and go to the business school. Maybe it was a cool thing to do. Uh, all my friends were kind of doing, it and I was pretty good at it. Ended up majoring in business. Uh, met this awesome professor, uh, Professor Wrestler. At some at some point in time, he was this guy in the business school who'd wear sweats and sandals to to, to school every single day. And just one of those guys that's influential, you know, he has a movie made out about him that is time coaching, you know, women's basketball. Uh, but he was a tax professor at University of Washington. Um, and uh, there's not very many people that can make tax fun, but he was one of them. Um, he ended up convincing me to do his master's in tax program at UW. So I stayed a fifth year uh, where I pretty much studied tax law for about, <laughs> for about uh, 12 hours per day. Uh, doesn't sound like the most exciting thing, but it became, it was like uh, taxes to me. seems like a little bit of a puzzle, right? We're helping people out, helping them save money on taxes. And that's where I got interested in that. Um, you know, after that master's program, um, ended up taking a job at PricewaterhouseCoopers or PwC out in New York. Um, a wrestler uh, who's a professor convinced me to go out to New York and told me that this is the move for me. Um, and it ended up spending five years total at PwC. Um, the first two years, 
um, I ended up working uh, for hedge funds and private equity funds as a uh, tax compliance and consulting professional. Um, in short, I did taxes and, and advised them on their how to save money on taxes. Um, wasn't my most uh, riveting two years. I think uh, I've quickly found out that um, you know studying uh, something and practicing something is completely different. Um, wasn't the, the the type of work that I was expecting. Um, ended up deciding you know, I was at a crossroads. Thinking after about two years there, do I move back to San Francisco, join a startup. You know, do I go back to my roots and start my own company? Um, and ended up getting recruited out to join a consulting practice where we helped um, uh, hedge funds and private equity funds implement technology and streamline and automate a lot of processes. Ended up being a lot more, uh, a lot more of my uh, up my uh, up my alley here. I really enjoyed that. Spent three years in that group called Tax Reporting and Strategy. But uh, there was always something missing. I think for anyone that's worked in the in, in a big, really big company and, and prefers to to build, for lack of a better word, uh, I really was seeking out something a little more. Um, and um, that's when I started talking to a lot of startups and. Got introduced to two uh, Dutch guys starting a, a startup called SecFi, um, the premise of which, uh, the idea of which rather, was that our founder, Voucher, um, was employee number four at a startup um, and ended up um, leaving the company after two years and tried to exercise the stock options. Um, he was hit with a 90-day exercise window um, and um, was hit with a $1.8 million tax bill. <laughs> Clearly had no way to pay it ended up losing his options because of it um, you know, and his anger. He, he, turned that, he turned his anger into kind of trying to find a solution for this and started SecFi shortly thereafter. Uh, so I got introduced to these guys who were working for someone who was interested in joining a tiny little team uh, based in Amsterdam and helping launch their San Francisco office. Um, so that's where I fit in and I took the leap of faith and joined them. Um, and that has, I've been with the company about two and a half years now. Um, uh, first in a, in a little bit of a consulting role, just helping them on a few things, and they asked me to join full-time. Um, so it's been a wild ride ever since. Um, Sec5, for just the cap for the, the listeners here, we help people with their stock options. We're a pre-wealth platform uh, that provides tools and resources for employees uh, so they can manage their stock options and make better decisions. Some of the top mistakes you see employees make, right? When it comes to equity, like, if I'm taking on a job role, early stage startup, right? One of the reasons we take on that risk is one day it's going to be worth a lot of money and then hopefully we can see that money. So what are like the top mistakes you see? Cause I think you have this really unique experience that a lot of people don't have. So would love to like, I guess, start right there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, 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 the number one mistake I see people making is not understanding what they have. And the kind of options they have, you know, uh, what it actually means, what's the value of those options, right? Because at the end of the day, a, a share count is just an arbitrary number, right? I can have two shares of the company and there's only four shares in the company, then that's a lot of money uh, versus, you know, 100,000. So, you know, I think what a lot of people do is they, they get the stock grants or, uh, you know, the shares, whatever they're granted, and they kind of just sit on it, right? They think, ah, this is a future... Uh, something to do in the future. That's what people think. Like stock options or uh, stock grants are a future problem to have. And if everything goes well, we'll worry about it then, right? That's so far from the truth, right? And I think when you look at that, um, you know, there's a few things involved, right? First and foremost, you know, I think, you know, if, if you're joining at the really early stage where there's not you know, a lot of structure set up, you know, you want to get everything documented in writing and 
everything pretty much squared away right away before you join the company. I know that's a little, uh, sometimes people just want to get to the company and start building and they, they push off the, the, the stock options, and everything like that. But unfortunately, you know, that's not how the, the IRS and uh, the, the rules operate, right? If you don't get your options squared away when you start, you know, you could be losing out on a lot of money down the road when your company, for example, raises around. Simple example, right? You start building, you don't get the stock options or if your stock grants assigned to you at the current valuation, you wait till after the seed round comes in and that valuation jumps up. And that's a lot of money that you potentially could be leaving on the table. Uh, so I think the first thing here is get everything squared away right away. Understand what you have, what you own. If you don't know, seek help. There's a lot of resources out there right now. Um, there's no right way to do stock options or stock grants. Every company does it a little bit different. Um, if you're coming on as, for, as a founder, you're usually getting shares of the company. If you're a first or second or early stage employee, you're usually getting stock options. Uh, but there's different ways and different structures, and there's a lot of ways to do it depending on the type of and, company. And, and, and VJ, I think it would be cool to go through like employee life cycle. So like as I'm, as I'm interviewing, right, what are the like top questions I should be asking, right? As a, a candidate, whatever you want to call it, like Robbie just took on this role at Agent Sinks. What are like the top five questions he should be asking? And then you're saying get squared away. Like, what does that mean? Like, what's the paperwork? What is it called? Like, give us like the super specifics, if that's okay. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think when you're interviewing, right, you want to know where you stand uh, with the company, right? Are you coming in as the early employee? Are you coming as a member of the founding team? Pretty big difference nowadays. I know that's it's semantics at the end of the day. Uh, but the number one thing you want to know is how much of the company you own at the current moment, right? Um, and I think that's something, especially if you're very early on, uh, you need to have that discussion with your co-founders uh, or the, the founder of the company that you're negotiating the stock options with. A lot of people get stuck on the value, but they don't understand the actual, um, you know, the, the actual percentage of the company they own. Uh, so I think that's first and foremost, right? That's what matters the most at that stage for coming on a super early stage, right? Understanding what percent of the company. Um, and, and then moving down like the, the pipeline a little bit, right? If you think about it from if you're coming on as an employee, right? You know, what is the current valuation of the company? It's kind of fascinating. A lot of people, I speak to a lot of people and they don't understand um, that a stock option is the right to buy a share. It's not like you're getting the options granted to you, right? So I think it's really, really important that you understand you know, where the company sits at the current moment. And I know that stuff's really complicated to most people, especially people who are coming in, maybe not have no financial background here. And they're really just you know, trying to dive in and start building a company or start coding, right? Uh, so it's really understanding where the company sits in the life cycle. Are they raising money? Are you getting shares before or after? Uh, and understanding that deep valuation of, the, of those shares at the current moment. Um, so I, I think that's really where I would emphasize that, that an individual focuses on the questions they ask. Robbie, I mean, how many of these questions did you ask in your interview uh, process? So far, most of them, but I'm, I'm worried to get like, there, there actually, it's a good point. It's a good question, Poy, because like, there's stuff you always learn after the process where you're like, damn, I should have asked that before. Yeah. Um, a couple of those things, actually, I wanted to bounce off you, VJ. They're just like questions that I've got having worked for a few different startups. My first question is, why do some companies give a 90-day option exercise window 
And like, I also, I worked at a company called Flexport and we had an amazing CEO, Ryan Peterson. And like, one of the things he made sure is that companies have a 10 year window to exercise their options, like after being there. So you literally can watch the company, um, you know, do its thing for 10 years. I bought my shares right away to be clear, because I, I believe in the company, but like, like as a CEO, like why would you pick one or the other? Does it really make a huge difference? And like, why not just give all your employees the option to do it for 10 years? And, and then as, a, as an employee, how easy is it to find that out? I guess like, right. I'm looking yeah. at it from both perspectives to double down on Robbie's answer. No, no, absolutely. And Foya, maybe I'll address your question first. I think this is the part of it, right? When you, you are granted these stock options and grants, read that stock option document. You've got to understand how your stock options work. It's it's, it's easy to find out because it should be written in there. You know, if you do leave the company or if you're terminated or if you're laid off, what does that look like for you? Um, there's also some other restrictions if you're looking out for, you know, can you sell your shares down the road? What does anyone own a rofer or right of first refusal when you sell these shares? It's really important and pretty technical stuff. So if you don't know that type of stuff, send it to someone who does know. It's really important, you know, send it to a legal advisor. Uh, but maybe jumping over to Robbie's question now, this is a, a very highly, uh, I'll call it controversial topic. It's in Silicon Valley, right? You know, stock options and exercise windows. Uh, and maybe to build off that for the, the listeners here, you know, most companies by default will um, say, if you don't exercise your stock options and you leave the company within 90 days, they expire. Now, this 90-day number may seem a little arbitrary, but it's built off an IRS ruling. Um, when company, when employees start at startups, they typically get a, a special kind of stock option called incentive stock option or ISOs. We'll dive into that a little later, but pretty, pretty much it's a special kind of stock option that has you know, special tax consequences. Now, the IRS says that you cannot have ISOs if you're no longer employee after 90 days. So the 90-day number comes from an IRS ruling. The IRS does not say you can't have stock options. So uh, what's very interesting is you just, the ISOs may convert to something called a non-qualified stock option after 90 days, which is a, another a, your standard kind of stock option. Uh, but by default, what a lot of companies will do is they'll just say, okay, well, your ISOs have to convert. We're just saying we're going to take the stock options back if you don't exercise them after 90 days. So why is this a hotly debated topic? I think, Robbie, you kind of uh, alluded to it a little bit, right? You know, it sounds like it's not an employee-friendly method, right? So what happens is um, an employee, you know, blood, sweats, and tears, you know, grinds through startup life for a year or two years, or three years, whatever the amount, and decides to leave the company and they don't have the capital or maybe they don't want to put up the capital to exercise their stock options because it can either be too expensive or they, they just don't feel good about it and they leave, the company can take back those stock options after 90 days and that's how the company, uh, company writes this. So it's a very controversial topic because, hey, these are employees, this is what the employee worked for, right? A lot of people go to startups for the equity and right off the bat, we're not giving them equity, we're giving them the right to buy equity and we're taking that right away after 90 days. Um, so it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of an interesting topic, right? I think the argument for it um, that I've heard people make, and I don't necessarily agree with it, um, is that the reason the 90-day exercise window exists is that it helps future employees, right? So for those of you that don't know, um, you know there's a certain stock option pool, right, uh, associated for employees. There's a certain amount of stock options. A company can't just, you know, create more, right? They have to, to set aside a certain amount of stock. 
um, and having more stock options in the pool um, can technically be used to recruit more talent to help build the company. So the argument for this 90-day window typically that I've seen from people is that um, it, you know, having people who left the company and non-expiring stock options is quote unquote dead weight. Again, not my words, just kind of like the argument for it and that if they're no longer at the company or not building the company, why should they be granted stock options? Um, so it's an interesting debate, right? And I think some companies have decided to switch it uh, to, you know, like Flexport, for example, to exercise, longer exercise windows, right? Instead of 90 days, you may have 10 years or seven years or something like that. Yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a really good explanation. I appreciate you taking us through that. I didn't realize that they converted after 90 days from an ISO to like a non-qualified stock option. That's interesting. And I'm just probably a level deeper we can go on a future call on that specific point. But I think a great question for anybody listening to this who's thinking about taking an offer is what's my exercise period? Like after, you know, if I, if I do end up leaving the company, like how long do I have to basically exercise my options? Because the reality is if you're one of the first 50 employees at a startup and you're there for, you know, the average amount of time a startup employee is, you're probably not going to have a really clear line of sight on like what those options are going to be worth by the time you leave. If you stick it out for the full journey, maybe, but in for most cases, you're going to have to make a hard decision. Do I want to put a bet on the table? Basically, if the company can give you the option to do that, that says a lot about the company and like what their values are as far as the employees go. So anyways, you probably know where I stand about this. Another question is about um, early exercise. So this is something that has come up at a couple startups I've worked at too. Can you talk a little bit about um, like for, you know, basically like at a high level, what is early exercise? Why should employees ask for it? And what does it cost the company to do? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so another very interesting topic. I mean, early exercise uh, for the, the listeners here, you know, it, it's effectively uh, the company has to allow it. The company can allow you to exercise your stock options before they vest. The sole reason you do this is for tax purposes, right? For example, you're granted a stock option to right to buy the company at $1 when the share price is a dollar, you don't get taxed on it today. Versus if you waited, let's say one or two years where the share price is called $2, for example, um, you may have to pay tax on that you know, additional $1 gain. Uh, so a lot of companies, what they do is they offer something called early exercise that allows an employee, when they start, to exercise their stock options right away prior to vesting. Now, the vesting schedule still stays in place, right? The, uh, the vesting schedule is effectively in there to make sure that, hey, you know, we're giving the employee the shares that, you know, that they earned over the years. So a typical vesting schedule, say, you know, a one-year cliff, meaning 25% of your, or typically 25% of your stock options vest after one year. Um, and then spread out between three years after that. So every single month thereafter, you have a portion at best. And that's to ensure that an employee doesn't just join a company and leave the next day and you know, make out with a bunch of stock options for three, right? Um, so you know, the early exercising effectively allows an employee to exercise prior to that vesting schedule. And if an employee does leave before the options vest, the company will just simply buy them back at the strike price that you gave, um, that, that you paid the company for them. So this is a huge, huge benefit for a lot of employees to exercise their options early when there is no tax bill. Um, a lot of people don't understand this, right? They, they get the stock options, like I mentioned earlier, Poya, to your question, they sit on it. They decide to kick the can down the road, forget about it, and only worry about it when the company you know, uh, gets closer to an exit. But it ultimately ends up being a huge amount of taxes uh, and makes it quite often unreachable to exercise. 
So the concept of early exercising is trying to exercise now when it's much more affordable and owning the shares. Uh, so you don't run into the problem. If you have an exercise window, for example, you don't have you don't run into the problem of having to exercise prior to leaving. Or if you want to exercise for tax purposes, it makes it a lot easier as well. Um, in regards to the, some of the downsides to early exercise. Um, so uh, the biggest downside is it, there is tax consequences in terms of you can only be granted so many uh, ISOs or incentive stock options per year. So if a company offers early exercise, uh, there may be a situation um, where the employee may be getting less incentive stock options or ISOs than they would have um, you know, if, if they didn't have early exercise. Um, pretty complicated, and a lot of people don't know that, but it, the numbers kind of work out where an individual is limited to $100,000 per year in ISOs and early exercise uh, kind of effectively chops up that number and makes it a lot harder to grant ISOs. Um, and second thing to that is the company needs to write it in their, their, their stock option plan and agreement. Um, it's a decision that's made early on when they're drafting <laughs> the company bylaws and whatnot with, the, with, the, with their lawyers or starting the company. Um, but, um, you know, it's something that's hard to change down the road or people just say, Hey, this is what we've always done. We're going to keep it this way. Let me, let me, I, I have a couple of questions based on just where your head's at. And I think for the audience, it's going to come off as like, what the heck are the, are they asking these questions? But it's just like, <laughs> as you're talking, I'm like, my head goes somewhere and Robbie's go somewhere. It's based on like real life experiences. So one of the things you talked about was, uh, writing stock agreements. Right. And that's like basically what happens in your stock grant agreement. I'm going to give you a really specific example that IE somebody went through uh, myself, which is I joined a company super, super early on. Right. I'm talking like as employee number one, where I don't even think they had an agreement. Right. And like what was promised to me was like the seed pricing. But for whatever reason, maybe it was my uneducated. I didn't ask the tough questions of what that dollar amount was. Right. right. And by the time I got the stock agreement and we signed it, it was, they were already like a significantly later stage company. So like by law, do I just have to enforce the company to like basically give me a stock grant agreement or can we go off of what's been agreed upon in my contract? Like, I, I guess like I'm getting really, really maybe tactical or granular and like giving a very specific right. example, but I can't tell you how often I've heard people like talk about this. And then the other question that sometimes happens is uh, 409A valuations, right? Sometimes right. companies like ask for extensions and sometimes they do the 409A valuation, which impacts your stock or equity grant. And sometimes they don't do it. So it doesn't have an impact. Like talk about those two things. Yeah, absolutely. And they're, they're very interrelated here. And I, I think I can weave them in together, but uh, the 409A is very, very important number. Um, Every single year, uh, your company, if they want to issue stock options, needs to grant, uh, sorry, need, uh, needs to receive a valuation of their shares, right? That's the 409A valuations. It's the value of one share of common stock. It's important for uh, an employee or, or a founder for two reasons. Uh, first and foremost, you can only grant stock options at that 409A, right? So if your 409A is called five cents per share, I can't go back and say, okay, boy, I'm going to give you shares at one cent per share, right? Um, so it, it determines the strike price for stock options. Uh, and second to that, it determines your taxes down the road. So if the 409A gets updated down the road to, let's say, you know, uh, 15 cents, for example, 
um, I'm now paying taxes on that difference from that five cents and the 15. So boy, I, I mean, I think this is a relatively common scenario and it's, it's kind of mind blowing to me because it happens much more than I expect. Uh, but what your situation that you described, right? You know, you worked with the company, you had a handshake agreement to say, hey, I want to, uh, I'm joining the company, you're gonna give me X amount of shares, right? At, at this valuation. And you kick off the paperwork. You don't get it in writing. You don't actually put things in motion. Maybe you guys were cash strapped and didn't have money for a lawyer, for example. I've heard that before. Um, or it was just you didn't have the time to do it. Uh, now, when the company uh, raises a new round, that 498 valuation goes up. And instead of getting the, the options at one cent per share, you're getting a five, time, five cents per share. So you're losing out on you know effectively four cents per share there. And it's actually a very common thing that happens. People kind of kick the can down the road and it's unfortunate because there's not much you can really do in that situation. Because as I mentioned before, a company has to issue stock options at a 409A valuation. They can't legally go back and, um, and, uh, and issue those stock grants at a one cent per share, for example. So it becomes a very, very difficult situation if you don't get it cleaned up right away. Yeah, so I'm going to echo this. If you're evaluating a company, okay, be smarter than I am and be like a Robbie, which is document that shit, get it signed, like force them to do it as soon as you join, right? Um, and like just ping them, ping them, ping them. Because I've seen it actually at pretty much every company I've worked at full time. And where it really, really hurt was a company that I've worked for went through an acquisition. And, uh, it was like a 10 X mistake, right. For, for me. And I'm, that's a lot of money. Right. So like, and I know I'm not alone. I, every time I kind of share the story, someone's like, Oh, we, we all have gone through it. You know, like, and I, in my head, I'm like, always like, oh, I wish I listened to somebody sooner. So before it's too late, go, go find somebody like VJ to help you out. So you don't make the mistakes that we do. So uh, Robbie, I'm going to, I'm going to turn it over to you. One of the things you brought up, cause you, you went through this experience. Um, as like an employee. And I think usually as an employee versus a consultant or advisory, like you're a little more serious, right? Because you're getting married almost. So curious, like you said, like every time I go through it, I'm better at it. But after I join, like I, I learn new things. So what are some of the most recent things you've learned? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. Um, so part of it is like, okay, what role am I interviewing for? And like, what's the benchmark for like, this stage of company and the role I'm at in terms of like what my, um, you know, what my equity package should effectively be, right? And there's, that information is not easy to find. Like it's kind of trade secrets, especially as you grow in your career and you move into more senior positions. Like it's just sort of like whispered. It's like an undercurrent of information in the industry. Fortunately, coming into this most recent role, I, I had some, some mentors and some folks that helped coach me through that. I'll, I'll shout out Brennan Cassidy specifically, who's gone through that and coached many a person in the Valley on how to think through that and like the VP of sales type of role. Um, what I didn't ask beforehand was like, is early exercise going to be something that we do or we don't do? Unfortunately, I have a good relationship with my CEO. So we like talked about that and the pros and cons and those different things as a company. But um, that was one option. And, and, and candidly, like another thing that I've heard, uh, something that I think, again, we might as well just put this out there because like this information isn't really available to a lot of people is for some more senior roles at companies, sometimes what like, you know, a director or VP level role might negotiate is the company um, issuing the ISOs with no 
basically a zero dollar like option clause or the company basically picks up the bill for like the the full four years it still has to vest over that period but the employee doesn't actually incur the cost i didn't know that was a thing um had i known it it maybe was something i would have brought up you know as you're thinking of the option bj i don't know if you've heard that happen at all but just in terms of offers but something i have heard is that um like i mentioned like for certain roles negotiating the company putting the bill for the option yeah yeah absolutely it, it happens especially for more senior roles i think the where it gets a little hairy, right? Does it look like a cash payment, right? Does it look like income? I'm sure you've probably heard this, but quite often what a lot of companies will do for some senior members to try to pry them out of other companies or you know, uh, if they're trying to recruit them out is they'll say, Robbie, this is amazing. We want you to join this team. Um, we're gonna grant you stock options. You're gonna come back and say, well, I, the stock options cost me $200,000 to buy, which is a decent chunk of change, right? and you have no way to buy them, right? So my creative solution as a company, as someone at the company is gonna say, hey, Robbie, can I give you, um, you know, why don't I give you a loan or something to effectively uh, exercise those stock options? Now, the reason why we structure as a loan versus let's say a, a bonus, right? I can, instead of just giving you 200,000, you're gonna get taxed on the $200,000 as income, right? Gonna, the IRS is gonna see that as, okay, Robbie's just getting a signing bonus. We're gonna get taxed, we're gonna tax him on it. He's only gonna get net 100. Becomes quite expensive, right? Um, one way I've seen people kind of work away around it is giving a loan to an individual. So the company will loan you, Robbie, an individual, um, you know, call it that 200,000. Um, there's ways to structure it. It gets, you know, a little tricky. It, it, this is, as you can imagine, only typically happens for, for uh, you know, higher up uh, individuals and executives. But um, things like, you know, you, it needs to be recourse, meaning that hey, you, can't just, you can't just write it off, you know, the company. It has to be a real loan. There needs to be interest. Um, so there, I've seen creative ways around this. Um, and uh, it really depends on the situation, though. I think most Quite often, companies will just say, we're not going to touch this because there's some restrictions as a company goes public. You know, they don't want more debt um, on their, you know, uh, they don't want stuff on their balance sheet. And as a company gears up to go public, you can't actually have these loans to officers of the company. Um, so it makes things complicated, but I've seen it before. Awesome. Okay. I, cool. I'm going to just add in here because this has been really, really tactical and like actionable. I think one other thing, just because I was talking... If you're early on in your career or if you're validating, don't be the nice person. I've made that mistake. You know, like this is a business transaction that you're making. You're committing to this company. You're committing to the startups, right? Have the courage to like, you're not being selfish by any means, right? Um, the same way that I think the CEO or the founders or whoever is preserving the equity, you should ask for what you think you deserve, right? And is, is fair market value. So if you're listening to this, I, I'm kind of done with people like, being like, oh, be, I'm being too nice or like, I'm just going to wait. I, I'll do it in good faith. No, none of that, right? Like, yeah. it's uh, like have the guts to go in there and ask for what you think is fair. Um, I guess my last- Boy, maybe just add to that. Demand yeah. the information you need to make the decision too. Yeah. It's probably a red flag of the company's hiding things like valuation or percentage of the company yeah. you're yeah. owning, right? You know, there's a reason they're not telling you these things and they're, they're really big, big numbers that you need to know to make an educated decision for yourself. And if they're not telling it to you, you know, there, there's, there may be a reason behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And what, if you're asking where you do it, you don't do it at early on, just to be very clear. Like it's usually if you're serious about the company, it's a little towards the end of the process, right? Once you know that you're like the, 
the candidate that you're thinking about, that's that's when these discussions come up. But definitely demand um, the information. Um, I, I guess last question before we kind of wrap up. Um, look, I'm a I'm a personal finance geek. Robbie knows this. I love doing my own taxes. Like I get obsessed about like learning and like reading and like it's it's really really weird. Like every dollar counts. So and I think there's really good frameworks in personal finance. Like one of them is get rid of your debt, come up with like six months of savings, right? Like there's a lot of good content. I've never seen a good framework for equity planning, right? So I'd be curious, right? If I'm an employee and I'm like, I'm like, is there a framework, right? Something that's super actionable for me to like, to think about that, like how in personal finance, you think about like have six months of savings, right? Then pay off your freaking debts, then save up for that, like next thing, like whether it's a house or whatever, like. Is there a framework like that for equity? And I apologize if it's like yeah. a stupid question or something, but I'm just curious, like if, if you've thought about a framework that is actionable for people. No, no, absolutely. And I wouldn't call it like a, a uh, I mean, it's kind of a simple framework, right? What I always tell people, the minute you get equity, you need to start planning or finding an, or find an advisor or both to, to start planning that for you, right? Equity, as you know, we've discussed throughout the podcast here, is it's, insanely, insanely valuable, uh, potentially very valuable. And the decisions you make now can be, you know, tenfold in your example, Poya, uh, in regards to equity. So what I always tell people, hey, very simply plan or find someone that knows how to plan this for you. And I think I always say right away, it's, it's never too early to start planning around your stock options and making the plan. Robbie, I mean, you know, you, you've actually, you early exercise your flex board equity and I'm assuming you're very happy with that decision right now, right? Uh, unfortunately, there's, I'm, I'm assuming you're, there's a lot of your colleagues that you probably know that didn't exercise and they're stuck in a lot worse situations because of that, right? So the decisions you make now, you know, we're tenfold down the road. So what I always implore people to do is right away, make a plan for your equity, right? Start thinking about it as we've discussed earlier, understand what you have, you know, the current valuation, where that company sits, what's a reasonable time frame to exit, right? Because that's the big decision. There's a lot of things that go into it. And the reason stock options are hard is, I guess, first off, inherently, they're complicated, right? Um, you know, they're, they're a financial product that's complicated. And a lot of people understand there's taxes involved. Uh, but probably the hardest part to this is it's a, you're betting on the future. You don't know what's going to happen with your company, right? Uh, and really getting a trajectory for where the company's headed, the growth path, and what is the plan to exit? Because ultimately, if you don't have that exit, it, it may be really hard to get liquidity on that. Um, and all this stuff, it's much easier to start doing it now, right? You make a plan for your equity, whether it's, hey, I don't want to exercise now. I'm going to wait, you know, one or two years and explore then. Um, you know, that's a, that's a great way to plan around your equity. You don't have to act on, act on anything right now. I would just make a plan and stick to that. You know, I'll, and I, I also say, talk to an advisor. It's just amazing how many people go at it alone and don't dedicate time to that. Um, if you don't understand this stuff or you're not a personal finance geek like yourself, Boya, you know, um, you know, find someone that is and can help you through it. Right? There's, it's uh, the, the 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 money being left on the table. It's just devastating from what I've seen, uh, especially with the recent IPOs. You look at DoorDash and Airbnb. You know, I think we, we just did a case study for DoorDash. And I think employees left the collective almost billion dollars on the table because they didn't exercise their equity. That's and insane. That's crazy. Do it, but absolutely gigantic numbers. We're not talking small uh, small dollar amounts here. 
and the average employee, I think we calculated close to a million dollars extra cash in their pocket if they plan to earn their equity. Yeah. And, and the last thing I'll just add, because you talk about exercise and look, early on in my career, like not all of us have the cash, right? It's, it's right. not all of us are living large, like Mr. Allen, you know, <laughs> can, can put, put, the, put the money, put the money down. So there are actually, I was so shocked. There's so many creative options out there where like they, they'll take the risk, like companies that literally, if their partners approve it, like they were willing to, like, they went in with me and unfortunately the exit wasn't successful but they take the risk they put the whole money down and like we negotiate terms where if they like did have a successful exit we would like split the winnings uh so what i'm trying to get at is like don't let if you don't have the cash if you don't have the capital like i was shocked how many creative options were that were out there right don't don't let that hold you back because there's a lot of you out there that are like early on in your careers. That's completely okay. Um, well, VJ, this has been so much fun. I'm actually shocked that one of Robbie's friends had so much actionable insight to, <laughs> to share with us, but this has been absolutely fun. So, um, and, and the last question, I guess, um, and please don't say the word equity in, in this answer, but the last question we love leaving our audience with, what would the older, wiser VJ tell the younger um, VJ as he's in like, you know, Harry Potter, I mean, I mean, uh, University of Washington walking around, you know, like in his husky <laughs> jacket, like what is that one piece of advice that you would tell your younger self? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would definitely tell myself to keep on building. I think as a child, I was always a kid, you know, trying to start new businesses, nerding out and coding, doing things like that. And I lost a little bit of that in college, right? And that's pro probably part of the reason why I ended up in one of the world's biggest companies at PwC, I kind of stopped that building. And so I don't really have any regrets in life, but if there's one thing I would have told myself back then is, you know, uh, there's builders that you guys are, you guys are builders. You guys built this podcast. Uh, when you have the itch to build, that doesn't go away ever, right? So I, I would tell myself, keep on building, you know, scratch that itch um, and, you know, stick to that plan that you had for yourself as a kid. Uh, straight away, but found myself back in the, in the, in the world of building a, sec, a startup like SecFi. So very happy where I'm end up. But you know, for those of you listening, keep on building if you have that itch. Awesome. VJ, thanks so much, man. This has been a blast. For folks that want to get in touch with you, assuming you're open to it and maybe they have questions or want to learn more about SecFi, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can reach out at VJ at SecFi.com. Another way, easy way to do it, just go to SecFi.com, S-E-C-F-I. Um, we have an intercom chat bot that you can reach out. Uh, you'll talk to some myself or someone on our team. If you have any questions whatsoever, we do our best to help out everyone. Um, so really excited um, uh, to speak to you all. But uh, you know, thanks for having me, guys. This is a lot of fun and really great stuff. Excited to see you guys having so much success here uh, in the podcast world. It's, it's all about it's all about perception we like to make ourselves seem bigger than we are but but in all seriousness it's been a, a ton of fun thank you robbie for uh, uh bringing on vj and to you listening be safe be well and happy holiday this week's episode is brought to you by oracle next week Oracle NetSuite, I think, solves a really important problem that a lot of startups, business owners, executives face, which is how do you get the information that you need instantly all in one place? 
before we upgraded the Oracle NetSuite at my last startup, it used to take us a lot of time to pull the information reports that we needed for our quarterly investment meeting or the report that we wanted to send to both internal employees as well as stakeholders and shareholders at the end of the month. Upgrade to Oracle NetSuite today so you can get the visibility and control you need over your financials, HR, inventory, and everything you need in one place that you can access instantly. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash scale. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash scale. That is netsuite.com slash scale.